I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening from the Channel 7 News Center. I'm Todd Witter. And I'm Colleen Sorensen. Coming up at 11, North Korean officials have made a tender offer to a group of local 7th graders after learning model rockets the kids had made reached heights of over 40 feet. Said one North Korean official, that's just the kind of magic we're looking for. More on our 11 o'clock broadcast. Is your dog gay? That's what researchers at Berlin's Everything is Probably Gay Institute would have you believe. They claim three out of every five small dogs are gay, and 17 out of nine large dogs identify as gay or transgendered. More on this at 11. Fresno, California residents were shocked to wake up this morning and to find they live in Fresno. Seems the Rohypnol the city adds to the water to make people forget they live in Fresno has been depleted. We will talk to stunned residents tonight. Did you ever wonder what's inside a razor blade? Or hey, how about a little baby? Or an enchilada? I'm handyman and amateur science hound Crispy Dunlop. And I'll have the answers in my regular segment, What's Inside Things? Tonight at 11. Thanks, Crispy. And could Cleopatra have actually been a man? Controversial new evidence says possibly, based on the fact that the Egyptian monarch preferred men's clothes, had a deep voice, a beard, a wife, and a penis. More shocking revelations tonight at 11. All these stories plus your local weather with meteorologist and noted salsa dancer Gunther Oki. Now back to the show that experts are calling the greatest show you've ever heard if you were raised Amish. It's... It's... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire, the show that will probably never air in Fresno now. Tonight, author and robot expert Daniel H. Wilson, political cartoonist Ted Rawl, and music from Star Anna. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it took James M. Kane to decide not to put a postman in The Postman Always Rings Twice, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thank you, Ralph. So as I mentioned earlier, we will have renowned political cartoonist Ted Rawl on the show later with his latest, The Book of Obama. And we also have author Daniel H. Wilson. He'll be talking about neural implants and our relationship to technology. And that actually got me thinking a little bit about my own relationship to technology, which actually got a little bit complicated recently when Apple decided to get a little bit too personal with me. 
I had to upgrade the software on my iPhone, and in the midst of it, Apple decided it was time to upgrade the security on my account. So it took me through three sets of security questions that I'd have to answer later if I forgot my password. And as soon as I pulled down the first set of questions, I knew things were a little different. I had five questions to choose from. What was the first car you owned? Who was your first teacher? What was the first album you owned? Where was your first job? And the kicker, in which city were you first kissed? Really, Apple? <laughs> you know, I realize I've invested a lot of money in you, and that may have given you the impression that we're closer than we actually are. <laughs> but that is a far more personal question than I was expecting while upgrading my iPhone software to Tabby or Calico or whatever the latest version is. <laughs> but it, it wasn't just that they were personal questions. It was that I wasn't sure I knew the answers to all of them or would be able to easily recall them when put on the spot, right? I mean, I loved my first teacher, Ms. Westbrook, but I couldn't remember if she was Miss or Mrs., so I couldn't really do that one. And I am absolutely not allowing a behemoth corporation to know the fact that the first album I owned was Travolta Fever. <laughs> do you remember it? It was the John Travolta two record set that folded out into a poster of him dancing in a pair of white satin pants. Yeah. Are you trying to humiliate me into not forgetting my password, Apple? And speaking of humiliation, there is no shame in being kissed for the first time in a coat closet in Aurora, Colorado. The parkas were comforting. So I went with my first car on that one, but then on the ensuing questions, that didn't help me a lot with my shame spiral either. Who was your best childhood friend? It was Casey Fitzsimmons, but we've totally lost touch, and now I just like photos of her kids on Facebook and wonder why I'm so cavalier about old friendships. <laughs> Which of the cars you've owned has been your favorite? Is that a thing? Am I supposed to have a favorite car? I drive Hondas, and they're pretty much interchangeable. The second brown one? What was the first concert you attended? I am not falling for that one again, Apple. But if you must know, it was Sean Cassidy, and yes, I know. I should have gone to the Fleetwood Mac concert with my brother, so I wouldn't be carrying around this first concert albatross for the rest of my life. Where was your favorite job? I don't have a favorite job. Napping. Can I get a job napping? In which city did your mother and father meet? They were on a plane. I have no idea what city they were flying over. Hoboken. I'm not going to remember that. Where were you on January 1st, 2000? Is this a security test or an interrogation? What are you trying to pin on me? Who was your least favorite teacher? Well, it was probably Mr. Henderson, but that was because he pushed me academically at a time I didn't feel like being pushed, and so it was probably my failing more than his, but there doesn't seem to be enough room for me to say that in the text box, and why are you asking me these things? I just want to be able to get into my iTunes account so I can download the latest version of Draw Something Poorly. I don't want to be sent on an emotional roller coaster ride through my past indiscretions. But I was, and I got through it, and now I have the all-important latest upgrade, but at what cost? And where will it end? Am I going to have to tell Apple when and how I lost my virginity in order to download Angry Birds? <laughs> and if so, are they willing to put psychologists on their help desk lines to deal with the emotional fallout? More, more than anything in this, I suppose I was uncomfortable with the whole thing because it forced me to realize how much information I've been willing to give up in order to continue my dysfunctional relationship with technology. But maybe we should just break up. But if we do, I am totally not telling Apple. Our musical guest tonight is loved by NPR and No Depression, and she was called an American original by Pearl Jam's Mike McCready. Seattle's own star Anna has one of those voices with a character all its own. Her latest record is Alone in This Together, and she's currently working on her newest album, The Sky is Falling, and preparing for a nationwide tour. Please welcome star Anna to Livewire.
to LiveWire right now, and we thank you. We know you have many choices when it comes to your radio variety show needs, and we're grateful you've chosen us to fulfill them. While you're waiting to hear roboticist and author Daniel H. Wilson, political cartoonist Ted Rawl, more from star Anna and poet Scott Poole, please enjoy this musical interlude and station identification. We'll be right back. Yes, well, 
Doctors, doctors, thank you for joining our team. We are really looking forward to your presentation today. Thank you. We're honored that the Human Enhancement Foundation has trusted us to brainstorm new neural implant technology and human enhancement robotics. Yes, we're moving into a new age where technology will allow humans to do extraordinary things. Mm. And we're thrilled that you've allowed us to be a part of it. Yes. Yes, yes. I I'm sorry, is that a slide projector? Uh, yes, why? Nothing. Go ahead. Oh. Excellent. Well, this first idea is one we're pretty excited about. Take a gander at the P2000 neural implant. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Yes. Hey, Dr. Robley, what are you planning to have for lunch? Well, I don't know, Dr. Price. Maybe a pastrami sandwich. Sounds great. But have you given any thought to the kind of pickle you'll have with that sandwich? No, it's just too complicated. There are so many choices. Exactly. And the P2000 neural implant is here to help. It's loaded with over 600 gigabytes of pickle data to help you pair the exact right pickle with your chosen sandwich every single time. That's impossible. Just test me. Okay, fine. Pastrami. Kosher dill. Smoked turkey. Bread and butter slices. Tuna melt on whole wheat. The forgotten gherkin. Amazing. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand. It's pretty advanced technology, Doctor, but the great thing is that we've managed to get the price per unit down to the 17 area. You think people are going to pay $17,000 to undergo invasive brain surgery to improve their pickle-choosing ability? Seventeen million. And when you consider the amount of time we spend in a lifetime thinking about which pickle to pair with which sandwich... Please, it couldn't be that long. Three point seven years at a minimum. Ah, well, regardless, this may be a backburner idea. Uh, do you have any more thoughts? Absolutely. Dr. Price, I sure do enjoy playing poker, but oh my, the shuffling! Oh my god, can you just get to the ideas? Oh, right. <clears throat> the HT4200 cybernetic thumbs can improve card shuffling skills by up to 7%. No, next. Prosthetic extrasensory arm hair. Nope. All-terrain fingernails. Not. No. Conway Twitty face. No. Augmented reality nostrils. What does that even mean? Subdermal retractable dog leash. That's completely disgusting. Change TV channels using only your mind. No. Understand Radiohead lyrics immediately. No. Wait. Go back. Do dog leash? Did you say change TV channels using only your mind? Oh, yeah. Are you telling me that my wife can be watching CSI New York and that I can change it to CSI Miami using only my mind? Yes. My God. We're about to change the world. That was Trisha Ferguson, Andrew Harris, and Sean McGrath with sound effects by David Ian. Daniel H. Wilson has become everyone's go-to robot expert. After getting a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon, he wrote great utilitarian self-help books like How to Survive a Robot Uprising and How to Build a Robot Army, followed by a novel with a slightly darker undertone called Robopocalypse. The book has been optioned by Steven Spielberg and has been slated for production in 2013. His follow-up to Robopocalypse is a novel that looks at the possible effects that robotic medical enhancement might have on our culture. If those who used to have deficiencies are now superhuman, how might so-called normal people respond? His book trailer might give you a hint. Amplified humans, they live amongst us, in our neighborhoods, our schools, our military. Their technology gives them unnatural advantages, yet they demand the same rights as pure humans. But what are these amps really capable of? To protect our children's future, we must fight to keep this nation pure. Uh-oh. That doesn't sound good. Well, here with his take on the current state of neural implant technology and where it might actually be going in the real world, please welcome Daniel H. Wilson to Livewire.
I wrote a book called Amped. The story is set in a near future in which lots of people have gotten neural implants that make them smart and fast. These people are called amps because they've been physically and mentally amplified. I think this is going to happen for real. So far, technology has been mostly outside of our bodies. But the day is coming when it will migrate inside. Some people will want that, others won't. It's going to be a big deal. Neural implants, also called brain implants, are medical devices designed to be placed under the skull and on the surface of the brain. Often as small as an aspirin, implants use thin metal electrodes to listen to brain activity and in some cases to stimulate activity in the brain. If that makes you queasy, then you'll be surprised to know that installation of a neural implant is relatively simple and fast. Under anesthesia, an incision is made in the scalp, a hole is drilled in the skull, and the device is placed on the brain, which has no nerve endings, by the way. Communication with the device can take place wirelessly. When it is not an outpatient procedure, patients typically require only an overnight stay at the hospital. Existing neural implants treat serious conditions. Cochlear implants for the deaf can deliver sound collected from an external microphone directly to the auditory nerve and into the brain. According to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, over 200,000 people already use cochlear implants worldwide. Other neural implants act as brain pacemakers, performing deep brain stimulation to treat people with Parkinson's disease. Others can be trained to recognize when epileptic seizures are about to happen, then deliver stimulation to the brain to try to stop them. But research is going further. In the future, it will be feasible for an implant to recognize almost anything. For instance, it could detect inattention. In response, the implant could stimulate the brain toward a state of focused attention. Recently, researchers at the Institute of Neurology at the University College London stimulated the brains of human subjects to increase focus to study the effects on their motor processing. In an elective setting, a user with this type of implant could potentially choose to stay in the beta wave state, that's focused attention, 24-7 with the neural implant constantly strengthening the associated circuits of their brain. It could make them smarter than other people. Maybe a lot smarter. They'd be amped. Alternatively, the neural implant of the future could strengthen neural pathways associated with physical tasks. It could recognize practice movements and deliver stimulation to associated neurons to help your brain learn faster. Initial users would be people learning to walk again after having a stroke, but you could just as easily be swinging a tennis racket or a baseball bat or hitting perfect jump shots. With help from a neural implant, it might be possible for athletes to hone their skills incredibly quickly. The next generation of assistive technology is making headlines every week. The journal Nature recently reported on two paralyzed individuals who were able to command a robotic arm to make reach and grasp movements by thought using only a brain gate neural implant. One woman had enough dexterity to pick up a cup and take a sip of coffee through a straw. In Boston, a blind man recently visited the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary and had a lens wired directly to his optic nerve. He's now able to see colors and read large print text. And last month, a woman paralyzed from the waist down walked the London Marathon in 17 days wearing a rewalk motorized exoskeleton. Brains and brawn amped. All you have to do is let the technology under your skin. It's going to be interesting, and it may play out in surprising ways. People with disabilities will probably be the first to receive this technology. So a person who had a disability yesterday may be super-abled tomorrow. It will turn our whole notion of what it means to be disabled on its head, which means regular people will get interested in the technology quick, but probably not who you think. The wealthiest people already have plenty of resources when it comes to education, jobs, and sports. Instead, it will likely be the people who need it most who will see the biggest benefit from using neural implants. The elderly, for instance. People who have lost physical and mental capacity through the natural aging process will be keen to regain it. The dissemination of advanced implantable technology will likely be just as ruthlessly democratic as the ailments it is destined to treat. So now we have a new class of very smart, very fast people, AMPs. They are people with disabilities and the elderly. Didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> uh, but what about the vast majority of people? As neural implants creep in around the edges of society, how will they react? How will you react? <laughs>
What happens when 40 million amped retirees return to the workforce? <laughs> when your daughter comes home from first grade as the only pure human child in her class and with the lowest test scores to prove it, do you agree to put her under the knife? When it's time to hire a new employee, do you choose the guy with the neural implant who works twice as fast as the normal candidate? Do professional sports teams let amps play, or is that cheating? Would you elect an amp to political office? Do you trust yourself to enter into a contract with an amp? What if they rip you off? Could you take them to court and get the contract annulled? What if it was a marriage contract, or a lease, or a loan? Will amps be discriminated against and ostracized? Will we find balance and live in peace? Or will there be a new civil rights movement? This is the stuff that I love to think and write about. <laughs> Our relationship with technology. And I feel like these themes have never been more relevant. Humanity has been co-evolving with technology for more than 100,000 years. Together with our tools, we're on a grand, generation-spanning trajectory through the ages. My novel, Amped, depicts one possible incarnation of our future, but whether we like it or not, the next step of this co-evolution is on the near horizon, and we're going to have to deal with it one way or another. Thanks. So Daniel H. Wilson is an expert on all things robot, but he's also a leader in the area of science fiction minutia. So we actually thought we'd give him a little test on the ray guns, lasers, and other weapons in science fiction films, like, say, the upcoming Robopocalypse, based on a book by Daniel H. Wilson. So here's what we're going to do, Daniel. Um, we're going to have David Ian play you a sound effect, and we will have Livewire sci-fi expert Sean McGrath give you a multiple-choice question. And it's just a few questions. And I just need to remind the audience, uh, Daniel Wilson is super smart, so please, no helping. Sean McGrath? All right, folks, you know the game. You love it. What we're going to do is going to play a sound effect. It's going to be from a movie. And uh, all Daniel's got to do is just tell us what it is. And we're going to give him some multiple choices, too, to make it, uh, make it fun for all. All right, David Ian, can I hear that first one, please? Was that Han Solo's DL-44 heavy blaster, a M27 phase plasma rifle from Terminator, or the library scene from Atonement? Oh, that was, that was Terminator phase rifle. That's the beginning when they're crushing over human skulls. And he, he knows Terminator very well. remember that okay. part. David Ian, next one, please. That's easy. Jeez. This is going to be a riot. Okay, was that the Cylon Raider turret from Battlestar Galactica, a TIE fighter blaster from Star Wars, or Daniel-san painting Mr. Miyagi's fence in Karate Kid? <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure those are TIE fighters. It was a TIE fighter. Okay, he's going for a perfect here, guys. David Ian, next one, please. Was that the M41A pulse rifle from Aliens, Robocop's Auto 9, or the sound of Bernie getting dinged in the groin at Weekend at Bernie's 2? <laughs> Having played a lot of Aliens versus Predator, uh, I recognize the sound of the pulse rifle. Literally. It is a pulse rifle from Aliens. Very good. Three out of four right now. All right, uh, last one, David Ian, please, if you could play the last sound effect. Is that a photon torpedo from Star Trek First Contact, the ion cannon from Empire Strikes Back, or the noise from Pretty Woman when Julia Roberts get her hand smacked in the jewelry case by Richard Gere? Uh, I, the, if we can hear it once more, please. <laughs> yeah, could we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm going to go with jewelry case on that. I'm going to take a Four a, a for gamble. four. Unbelievable. Amazing. He's handsome and smart, folks. Well, Daniel, thank you for joining us. Come back again. We're going to play Name Which Movie That Wilhelm Scream Is From. Daniel Wilson, everybody. Thank you, Daniel.
You are listening to Livewire Radio, and if you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, you can listen to us anywhere, anytime, within limits. Listening in church would be a bad idea. Listening during skydiving safety class, also bad idea. But most of the time, good idea. For more information and to download our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Our next guest is a political cartoonist who started his career at Columbia University, drawing for the Columbia Daily Spectator. And after school, he was signed for national syndication. And 20 years later, his cartoons appear in over 100 publications, including the LA Times, Washington Post, and New York Times. He has written or drawn over 15 books, including nonfiction prose like the Press Action Award-winning Anti-American Manifesto, graphic travelogues like To Afghanistan and Back, which won the Best Book of the Year Award from the American Library Association, and graphic novels like The Year of Loving Dangerously. He's won Best Book of the Year three times from three different organizations. He's won first prize at the Alternative Newsweekly Awards. And in 1996, he was a finalist for the Pulitzer. His latest book is The Book of Obama, From Hope and Change to the Age of Revolt. Please welcome Ted Rawl to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Ted. I wanted to just go back a little bit for our audience members who, who may not be familiar with your work. Um, you started drawing comics when you were at Columbia University. What made you start drawing comics? I didn't really want to get a real job. And uh, so, yeah, no, I, I lived in, I grew up in uh, Dayton, Ohio, and we had a really awesome editorial cartoonist there named Mike Peters. And uh, uh, when I was a, a high school kid, I won a state cartooning award, and he came to the school and invited me to his office, and I uh, went downtown to the Dayton Daily News office, and I was like, here's a guy who gets to work around drunks. And, and I was like, you know, I could live, I could like have a job working at a newspaper and be paid to drink alcohol, <laughs> which turned out not to be true by the time I was 48 years old, but, yeah. but at the time it was true. And I was like, you know, he's paid to make fun of the President of the United States. I mean, if you grow up in Dayton, Ohio, you can work for National Cash Register, or you can work for Mead Paper Corporation, which makes those notebooks that you had in high school, or you can work for the Air Force. And, you know, if you work for the Air Force, you can, like, fall out of the sky and, like, die. So I thought, cartooning. <laughs> exactly. Much safer. Much safer. I thought, yeah. Well, and you're, ob- you're incredibly passionate about what you do, and, and it's interesting because we've spoken to a lot of people who do political satire as, uh, you know, they'll do be either a stand-up comic or they'll write for a show that does satire, and the message with them is almost always, I'm not trying to change anything, I just want to make people laugh, but you've said very often, I want to change things with my work. Well, I think, you know, I have this, I, I have a, there are only about, 35 editorial cartoonists left in the United States. And, and so we all talk on the phone, even like one of my best friends is a right winger, uh, Scott Stantis at the Chicago Tribune. And we always talk about how, you know, you should know if you're a political pundit, what you would do if for some weird reason you became president of the United States tomorrow, you, right. sh- you should know exactly what you would do. I mean, actually the guy who becomes the president of the United States doesn't know what he would do, but you should know <laughs> what you would do. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think you're there to change the world. And, yeah. Or, you know, you can't, but you should try. Well, it's interesting because in the book, you, one of your issues, one of your, I didn't count them, but there's thousands of them, but one of your issues with the Obama presidency is you feel like he came into it and he didn't have a to-do list. But you have a to-do list, right? Like right. If you, and so he's what, paid what so much yours? more than me, too. I mean, $300,000 a year plus Secret Service protection. Uh-huh. I, mean, I mean, really. I mean, he should have known what he was going to do when he came in. He did not know. No, he really didn't. But, but you have a to-do list. Like, you have your own to-do list, right? If, if that yeah. happened. Oh, so I what mean, would be on your list? Um, the head of every Fortune 500 corporation in America would be in prison overnight. First thing, first thing off the list. We'll figure out the charges later. <laughs> I've got drones for them. Right. <laughs> well, and there's also, I think, um, there's also a, a kind of a back and forth about a discussion about whether or not political cartoons should be funny or should change people's minds. 
I mean... Well, funny helps change people's minds. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, uh, good cartoons are ideally funny, but sometimes, you know, I mean, like, what are you going to do that's going to be funny the night before your country invades Iraq without any right. reason whatsoever? You, you, you can't... Uh, maybe someone, a better cartoonist than me, could be funny. I couldn't be. And so, uh, you know, there are times when you just want to scream, and that's what an editorial cartoon can do at, at times, you know. But it's best when it's serious and it's funny at the same time. And, and you've also spoken about how really political cartoonists are almost extinct at this point. You yeah. had said that in, at the turn of the century in 1900, there were something like 2,000. 2,000. And now there's, you just said, 36. Uh-huh. What job do political cartoonists do on, <laughs> on an editorial page that the rest of the page doesn't do? What are we missing when we're missing that? It's unbelievable that um, we're going out of business because, you know, in most lines of work, when you're popular and people want you, 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 you do okay. You know, I mean, this is it. But what, what's going on is that the gatekeepers at uh, magazines, newspapers, and websites are just killing us. But, you know, it's been proven that if you if they look at the numbers, like Slate and Salon, all these websites, you know, editorial cartoons get a huge number of hits, but they cancel us. Nevertheless, yeah. and so it's bizarre. It's like it's like it's like a conspiracy. It's like McDonald's decides, like you know, nope, you know, everyone wants to eat hamburgers, these horrible corporate hamburgers, but nope, we're not going to feed them to you anymore. We're just going to make you eat like rutabagas from now on. And <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's a uh, it's a weird thing because uh, you know, with we all talk about this, we've never been more widely disseminated. We've never been more read. I've never been more popular. I've never had more readers. I've never been more broke. Uh, there's no money. It's not just cartoons. It's music. It's playwrights. It's right. everything. Well, I mean, I think that it's a lot because newspapers really ignored the internet when it first started, and they charged advertisers nothing because they didn't think it was worth anything. Right. I mean, and so, and that, so that infrastructure still exists. Even prostitutes know you don't give it away for free. I mean, <laughs> That's it's true. I they mean, really know that. Yeah, they really know that. I mean, people who run newspapers are idiots. I mean, there's nothing short. To, I mean, look at any daily newspaper in the United States. They're like living in the 1950s. That, yeah, mean, yeah, really? they are. They're, yeah, they're not really paying attention to what people. They are use words like family s- newspaper. So what does that mean? There are no families anymore. <laughs> uh, if you just joined us, we're talking to political cartoonist Ted Rawl. His book is the Book of Obama. Um, and just sort of moving into the book, um, you certainly, you know, you, you have a lot to say about his presidency. You have some difficulties with a lot of things that he's done. But one of the things that, that you say that we should be grateful for is the fact that he was the reluctant midwife of a revolution. So h- how did he birth a revolution? I'm going to save you guys 14 bucks. You don't have to buy the book. Um, so it's like this. Uh, he's, Obama is Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev was the best leader of the Soviet Union. And because he was the best leader of the Soviet Union, he exposed the fact that the system was the problem. And people got rid of the system. Here we see now, you know, Eric Alterman says that Obama is the most liberal, the most thoughtful, most intelligent president, that this system is capable of elevating to high office. And I said, that's exactly the problem. Um, he is absolutely the best that we, that we can get. And he's not nearly good enough uh, we have we're in the middle of a huge economic meltdown. The you know we have the lowest uh, participation rate in the labor force since the 1930s, which is the real measure of unemployment. We have no help for the people who've been foreclosed upon. Uh, there is we're moving dramatically to the right. I mean, you have a president who asserts the right to drone you to death on American soil. You, you, you. Even though I like your hair and everything, but you're totally going to be. I mean, it's insane, and like, uh, you just don't have a. Uh, y- y- this system is not capable of addressing these problems. It's not. They're not even. You know, when I say addressing the problems, I'm not talking about solving the problems. I'm talking about thinking about these as problems that maybe we should get around to doing something about at some point. We're not there, and that. Sh- and you know, I mean, back when George W. Bush was the president, you thought it would be so awesome if the president spoke English. <laughs> You know, you'd see him next to Tony Blair, and, you know, and, and you'd be like, God, this is so embarrassing. I, I hate the fact that I'm American, 
And, and then like, you know, now we have a president who speaks English real good. And, <laughs> and what good does it do? Because, you know, if you've been thrown out of your house or lost your job, your, your unemployment is still SOL. Yeah. Well, and, and you've said in the book, essentially, the system is so broken, it doesn't matter who's in charge. It just needs, to, we need a restart. We need a revolution and a mm. restart and a new government. What does that new government look like to you? What's your ideal situation? You know, everybody always asks this question, and it's like, God, you know, if I had the dictatorial impulse, uh, <laughs> I, I would, like, find a nice third world country to run. And, but uh, I don't, and I probably wouldn't, I'd probably be killed before I ever come to power. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it, this is about all of us. It's about democracy, you know? I mean, I, I spent, like, I spent um, two weeks camping out at Occupy DC when it first started out. And um, the, the, and the thing is, I'm a member of uh, Occupy in where I live in, in uh, Occupy, it used to be called Occupy the Hamptons. It's Occupy the East End now. <laughs> For real. So, Yeah. Anyway, camping so, in their SUVs. So the thing is that, like, but what was cool about Occupy DC was, you know, it was two weeks of hanging out with people from all walks of life. You know, there's, like, Ron Paul supporters. There's, like, 9-11 truthers who think that, like, missiles brought down the Pentagon, brought down the, the World Trade Center. Um, you know, people who have really radically different ideas, all different walks of life. People who think, oh, if we just got rid of the Glass-Steagall Act, everything would be fine. Whatever. And the point is, you know, you can't just... We all have, those people, all of us, the weirdos, like me and all of us, we all have to get together and like figure it out together. So the point is, we have to, what revolution is, is the process of getting rid of the old system and then working together to create and invent a new one. So it's not like, you know, just add water, dehydrated revolution. I mean, you have to, this is about everybody, including the people who don't know enough and the people whose ideas are stupid and the retards and the flakes. And it's about everybody. And it's, democracy is hard, you know, but that's, there's no other way. Well, and, and I think that you, you talk a lot about just people getting engaged, people paying more attention. You know, just people aren't paying attention. And you actually, you know, you went so far as you went to Afghanistan a couple of times. Um, the, the last time that you went was in 2010, I think. Yeah. That's you know, and you'd, you'd gone in 2001, and you, you obviously disagree with, with Obama's stance on, on being there. Um, what, did you see any sort of improvement between when you were there in 2001 and 2010? Yeah, I mean, I did. I have to be honest. I mean, yeah. there were certain things that had gotten better. I mean, there were certain improvements in infrastructure. There, you know, I was amazed to see some paved roads, um, electricity, uh, cell phone service is actually demonstrably better in Afghanistan than it is in the United States. I well, mean, then we've won. I mean, <laughs> we're done. I even had 3G in Kabul. Okay, but overall, I mean, the, the, the things that were important have gotten much worse. I mean, you know, at the time, the Afghan people were, in 2001, were very optimistic. They thought, you know, we're here to help. And I was like, do you know us at all? I mean, you have any sense of our history here? And it was like, no, the American people, they will come and they will give us money. I was like, no, 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 that's not how we do, that's not how we roll, you know? And, but they, um, but, but in 2010, I was shocked because, Nine years later, um, you know, the, the thing about the Afghan people is that they're, you know, they've been traumatized by war, but they've really come, you know, they, they're really brave and they're up for anything, especially if $100 bills are involved. And that just wasn't true by 2010. I mean, I, uh, people were terrified. They would just not venture outside of the cities. Um, if you wanted to go from Kabul to Herat or to Kandahar or to uh, Mazari Sharif, you have to fly. They hopscotch over the, you know, 95% of the country is occupied by the Taliban. They hopscotch by plane over, including government officials. They don't control it at all. I, I, t I rented a motorcycle and I was driving through central Afghanistan and I came up to a Taliban checkpoint and these guys are like, are you CIA? Which is CIA. And I was like, really? Have you seen any Americans ever? And they were like, no. And I was like, do you think the first American that they would send here as a CIA agent would be riding like a broken down motorcycle in the middle of nowhere? And they're like, not really. And I'm like, can I have some tea? And, and that was it. You know, I mean, they just, in the middle of the country, they haven't even seen us. 
Yeah. You know, the truth is that the big takeaway about Afghanistan is we're not actually occupying Afghanistan. We're just using eastern Afghanistan as a staging area to uh, launch attacks against Pakistan. That's really what is going on. Well, and it's it's all in the book. And actually, um, you can you can still find the the you actually drew a cartoon every day when you were in Afghanistan, and it's on the LA Times website. So you can go to the LA Times website, and you can actually see those cartoons. They're still up. There's also cartoons, uh, lots of cartoons in the book. Uh, the book is the Book of Obama from Hope and Change to the Age of Revolt. The author is Ted Rawl. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Thank you. Livewire, the radio show that would have found John Edwards guilty of being really, really creepy. Listen to the show any time of the day at livewireradio.org or subscribe on iTunes. Skip Hurley with you today for game one of our double header between the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Chicago Cubs. And boy, what a beautiful day for some baseball. 78 with a slight breeze heading out towards center field. With me in the broadcast booth, as always, is 18th century aristocratic boy prince, Dorian Percy Hollingsgate. Greetings, good sir. I'm so very excited to witness these spectacular goings on. <laughs> now, the Cubbies come into L.A. winning four of their last five. What manner of dress are you wearing, Mr. Hurley? It looks like that of a servant boy. <laughs> well, it's a simple sport coat, Dorian. Uh, Kenneth Cole, it's I think. It's simply ghastly. There's no satin or velvet. And where are your military medals given to you by your father for your birthday? Well, my father wasn't in the military, Dorian. He owned a hardware store. How embarrassing for you. <laughs> and the Dodgers take the field. Oh, yay! Look at them run! Taking the mound for the Dodgers is 24-year-old Clayton Kershaw. Dorian, what do you think of the year he's been having so far? Oh, he reminds me of my fencing teacher. His name was Cordial. One day his foil grazed my cheek during a fencing lesson. I had my guards hold him down while I severed his hands. He never fenced again. <laughs> Well, Kershaw is going to need both hands today. The big lefty is 5-1 and one at Dodger Stadium with a microscopic 1.47 ERA. He sure does love pitching at home. I want to purchase him for my living museum. <laughs> well, Kershaw is getting $19 million over two years. That's certainly going to jump up a bit in free agency. $19 million is what my ruby mines fetch every spring. Going up against Kershaw today is big right-hander Ryan Dempster. Now that man makes me think of a summer day in which my twin sister and I played in Father's Botanical Garden. Anastasia captured a dragonfly, a most majestic insect. Its vibrant green thorax seemed a jade of immeasurable worth. Uh, you, you gotta love dragonflies. <laughs> she plucked off all of its wings and laid it on an anthill. That night I dreamed of how it thrashed about as it was consumed. <laughs> that reminds me, folks, next Sunday is Dollar Dog Day down at the park. So come on out as all Jumbo Clubhouse and Dodger hot dogs are just a buck apiece. I wonder if these hot dogs you speak of taste anything like rhinoceros liver. <laughs> First pitch coming up after word from our sponsor, St. Words, St. Words, really, seriously? Just Saint, say it. St. Saint, Worcestershire's Cucumber Sandwich, St. Worcestershire's, they're impertinently ambrosial. I wrote that last part. My family owns St. Worcestershire. Somebody kill me. <laughs> That was Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris with sound effects by David Ian. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Livewire. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Star Anna.
has promised to sum it all up for us with a poem he finished writing 30 seconds ago. Please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. The day begins with a squirrel jumping on my face, trying to bury a peanut in one of my nostrils. Well, I know I probably shouldn't have fallen asleep in the backyard while playing croquet with my croquet teacher, Cordial. But for a moment, I forgot that I lived in Fresno. But when I nestled behind one of the wickets with my mouth open and my Conway twitty face like a suckling pig, I fell into a delicious dream of life as a neural amped suckling pig communicating wirelessly with the apple stuck in my mouth. <laughs> Since I might kill someone with my laser snout, no one wanted to eat me, which was a very lucky break for a suckling pig. Don't think I didn't know it. It was like getting paid to make fun of the president. You'd be surprised how many people start eating apples when an amp suckling pig arrives on the scene. I mean, it's red delicious, green delicious, and even beige delicious, crunching all over the place. People so loved my life of freedom with fruit in one of my orifices that they wanted to fill the others as well, like shoehorning Mitt Romney into the presidency. <laughs> That's when someone tried to shove a very hard quince into my nose when I suddenly said, Damn it, cordial! This is no quince. And that's when I woke to the beady eyes of a squirrel scratching upon my countenance. And that suddenly reminded me of the time I lost my virginity. Because I had been asked that on an Apple security question earlier in the day. My loss of virginity, I remember, involved sneaking off to the woods and being attacked by wolves while trying to remove a bra, which was inconvenient, but at the same time was kind of a save by the bell moment. I don't mean that screech and the girl that said, oh my God, too much pulled me and my girlfriend out of the circle of blood-hungry beasts. I just remember that I wasn't too upset that I wouldn't be sucking at love at that moment, but instead could suck at fending off wolves, which is a more understandable type of suck. <laughs> so what I learned tonight was to drink coffee before playing croquet with cordial when you're in love with amp-suckling pigs. Thank you. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Daniel H. Wilson, Ted Rawl, and Star Anna. The Mutton Shops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Paul Brainerd, now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Burgerville, featuring Burgerville Radio, music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, director Jason Rouse, and master of sound David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole, with guest writer Ben Coleman. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with House Sound by Scott McLeod. Stage management by Graham Nystrom. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Vondrele and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And 
if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. From PRX.